Let's go ahead and pray, if we may. Loving God, we ask that you would be with us here in our words and in our thoughts. That like Nicodemus, and like Samson, and like the Apostle Paul, we might have something to witness about. Something that is good news that we were meant to share. May it happen according to your word, O God, our rock and our redeemer. And may the people say, Amen. I've always loved this passage that Keller just read for us from the book of Acts. It caught my imagination when I was a teenager. And say what you will about the Apostle Paul. You may not like some of the things that he said in letters or attributed to him about women in the church or about people who share the bed with the same gender or other things he might have said or might not have written. He was amazingly tireless, indefatigable, and audacious. They say that he probably, in his missionary journeys, traveled some 10,000 miles, which I think if we were to translate today would be similar to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's nearly million miles of flying around the globe. He traveled all over, and he was fearless as he went through the Mediterranean trying to spread the word of the Christian gospel. And here he finds himself in the sophistication of Athens, and he takes it on. Now, it's important to remember that at this point in his ministry, he has already survived an earthquake. He has already survived an imprisonment. He actually got in trouble in Lystra as he was sharing the gospel in the synagogues, and some of his own Jewish sisters and brothers took him out and stoned him and left him for dead. And yet, here Paul still is trying to preach in Athens. He is fearless. And he has been accused in places of trying to turn the world upside down, which in the Roman system, that was punishable by being banished to an island. He's also being accused of treason, which is punishable by death. And here in Athens, I think of him as some sort of tourist with his Fodors, or his lonely planet guide to Athens and Greece, wandering around trying to make his way and figure out what this is all about. Now, you need to know that Athens at this time in its history had been taken over by Rome about a hundred years earlier. And their glory days might have been even further away than that, like 500 years earlier. If you think about it, it's sort of as if New York were to take over New England. Think about it a second. Symphony Hall would become Lincoln Center North. Fenway Park, think about this, would be owned by the Yankees. Yeah. And Foxborough would be overtaken by the Giants. Just, yes, yes. So you get the sense of what this might have possibly felt like for the Greeks, for the Hellenists who believed that they had the highest form of culture. And I think of Paul wandering through the streets, looking at all these graven images, which were forbidden, as you know, in the Ten Commandments. He might first of all see Zeus, big and mighty, looking a lot like what he might have imagined Moses or even God looked like, brawny, big, strong, with a thunderbolt in his hand. And I'm sure Paul, who not only had been stoned and imprisoned, but racked by what he called a thorn in his side, we don't really know what it was, felt small by comparison under Zeus. And he comes to Hestia, the goddess of the hearth and home, 
an Amazon of a woman in a big tunic, so big she could crush him with just her sandal. And then he comes to Artemis, who looks like a young woman athlete in a tunic somewhere between a field hockey outfit and a cocktail dress, with the horns of a deer in her hands and bow and arrow over her shoulder. Paul's never seen a young woman like this before. He turns over here and sees Aphrodite, the image of beauty, naked, bare-chested, with her curves and a cloth just sort of scantily holding on to her hips, the vision of beauty. He might see Ares standing over here, also naked, wearing nothing but a helmet and a shield, the god of war, of aggression, the god who is the fighter. And this would be shameful, both these images for Paul, because Judaism, at least historically, is pretty much a cover-yourself-up kind of religion. And so to see these naked images in the marketplace for everyone to see would have been disturbing. Finally, he might have come over here to Hermes. Hermes, the winged foot messenger who would take people down into the underworld. Hermes, who is fleet of foot of speed. Hermes, who is the god of education and athleticism. And Paul is deeply disturbed by all these graven images. He gets up in front of the Athenians and he says, <clears throat> Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went up and saw them, I was disturbed by all these graven images. I should just tell you for a moment that he was taken up to the hill named after Ares, the god of war, the Areopagus, as Keller told us. It's also sometimes called Mars Hill. That's the Roman name. We have a Mars Hill church starting up in Brookline. There's Mars Hill churches around the country. This is a very significant place to bring him to make his argument because it's the place where in one of his plays, Aeschylus had Orestes tried for plotting against his mother Clytemestra and her lover. It's the place where Socrates was tried and later convicted for false teaching. It's a place where people are brought on the hot seat. And Paul knows he better step up. You see, he had this habit, as I mentioned, of going into the synagogues and arguing with people about the faith and telling them that Christianity is the way to go. Which, to go into a strange synagogue and argue with people is a strange marketing ploy for your cause, I think. But he did it again and again. That's why he got dragged out to be stoned. So, back to his speech. He's up here at the Areopagus. He says, he tells them how extremely religious they are, how he's seen all these images. And he said, and then I found one that said to an unknown God, Agnosto Theo. And here's where Paul really gets bold. What therefore you worship as unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. This is the God who made the world and everything in it. This is the one who is the Lord of heaven and earth, who does not live in these shrines made by human hands, nor served by human hands with offerings before these statues, as though God needed anything. But this is the one who gave everyone life and breath and meaning and spirit. This is the one who from our ancestor, and by ancestor he's referring to Abraham, has made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, has a lot of the times, the days, and the years, and the boundaries of places where everyone should live so that we might search for God and perhaps grope for God and find God. 
Though in reality, God is not that far off from most of us. And here's where he gets rhetorically brilliant, because he knows who he's speaking to, a bunch of really smart Athenians. Here he is, this kind of scrappy terrier from the Levant with these purebred Athenian intellectuals. And he says to them, he quotes one of their scholars, Epimenides, for in this God we live and move and have our being, spoken seven centuries earlier in ancient Greece. Or even one of your poets, Eratus, has said that we too are this God's offspring. Just to think of what this might have been like contextually, it's as if someone from China were to come here today and preach to us about doctrinaire communism and insert the words, as you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Speak in language of the common good. That's the sort of subversive rhetoric Paul is using his genius for. This in God in whom we live and move and have our being is known in theological circles as pan-entheism, God in everything. I know some of you have heard this idea before. It is still considered somewhat radical in Christian circles today. But Paul is going for it here, and he says, since we are God's offering, we ought not to think that the deity is like stone or gold or silver or other human-made things formed in art and imagination because God has overlooked the times we've been ignorant and commands all of us to turn things around to change our mind. Now, as the text mentions, Paul is speaking to Epicureans and Stoics. Epicureans are people who think that life is too much about pain and sorrow and therefore we should get the pleasure whenever we can. They actually think that there's not much use in having these idols and gods because there's no providence in it And to leave an offering just doesn't make any sense. The statues are not going to use these offerings. So they are going for enjoying life right now as we know it. The Stoics, on the other hand, they think that all reason stems from Zeus, the Logos, and they are hardwired rationalists. They believe that we need to stay right in this moment and figure out how we can be in harmony with the cosmos. In fact, I think when John was preaching in the beginning of his gospel about the Logos, the word made flesh and dwelling among us, he was thinking of the Stoics and how they might receive this gospel. So here's what Paul is trying to do with these smart Athenians. He goes on to say, we're commanded to return everything around because God has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by someone he appointed, that would be Jesus Christ, And he's given this assurance to all of us by raising this one from the dead. Now, for the Greeks, raising someone from the dead was not a very assuring thought. For them, it would have been like saying, you're going to be guaranteed to have a root canal without anesthesia. They felt that death was a release from this life. So here's where I think things start to turn for him rhetorically. He would rework this later in a letter to Corinth. But I think this might have lost him some converts because the resurrection was a strange concept to them. I wonder if Paul were to come to us today here in what many people have called the Athens of America, in Boston. It's been called that at least since 1803. How would we respond to this preacher from the Levant? Because some of us, I know, bow down to a God of power and might. We want to be able to take that lightning bolt and zap people with whom we don't agree. Some of us... (laughs) Some of us have a God of the family, 
that we think is paramount in our lives. It gives us meaning. But even Jesus would challenge us on that as he asked his disciples to leave family behind for something deeper. Some of us love, like Artemis, the hunt, the conquest, as well as the woodlands and the hills, and that's paramount to us to be out in that. Or some of us worship beauty, and we strive for it all the time. Our culture certainly does. We spend, I think it's about $9 million on cosmetic and beauty products every year, and about $60 million on fitness not to mention other ways of contorting and giving us images of what beauty is, things that come out of Madison Avenue and Hollywood that make us feel like if we don't look like that, we're not beautiful. Or then the God of war, which we know too well, as we think of the billions of dollars we have spent on wars, of the people left behind who are maimed physically or psychologically, this God we bow down to who says that might makes right and the best defense is a good offense. Or the God of Hermes, quick and fleet. 4G's is not fast enough on my iPhone. I need to go faster, harder. Also the God of education, and I don't have to tell you that in this region of the country, we value education sometimes like a God. Sometimes not even for the education we receive, but the cachet that a certain institution will give us the god of athleticism, Hermes. You see, Paul is saying there's actually something deeper, a god whom we hardly know and we don't often talk about. And I think that some of us, when we come here again and again, we feel like we hardly know that god as well, although we try to come here and get to know that god a little bit better. It's kind of like that old story of the elephant that we don't know if it's a tusk we have a hold of, or a tree trunk that's a leg, or a tail that feels like a rope. We are sometimes limited by our strange and half version of what it's like to be in front of God. Paul had the strength and the wisdom, despite the fact that he was a slightly sloppy theologian, and he spoke a third-rate Greek to get up in front of these learned people and say what he knew out of his heart, out of his conviction, something that felt unknown to them. And I believe that we're called to do the same thing. I believe that we're called to get to know God in intimate ways. I'll just say in defense of the Athenians that we have trouble understanding God, and so we compartmentalize God in this ways. In the Christian tradition, we've done it with saints, sort of demigods, gods we can, demigods we can relate to, who we see some of ourselves in. They do this in the Buddhist tradition, they do it in the Hindu tradition as well. It's a way of making God more relational. It's even the reason, I think, why we have a trinity, so we can see God as this creator, sustainer, parent, as well as a companion, a sister or brother, as well as a spirit who breathes through us. Now, we say that we follow a God who is open and affirming. And I believe if that's really true, then we need to tell people about that God. Because there are plenty of people who don't believe God is open and affirming. I believe if we think that it is God, it welcomes us wherever we are, wherever we meet people, either in the church or on the street, that we try to bring Christ to them, then we need to tell people about that God. 
I believe that if we believe God is still speaking, then we need to tell people about that, what it means in our lives. It doesn't matter whether we know the language very well or whether we can always be articulate. It's something we can work on. And here are some challenges I will give you, perhaps for your summer. If we want to be able to speak about this unknown God, a God that is loving and inclusive, that brings us in and draws us closer, that tries to welcome us and tries to encourage us to welcome as best we know how, then I think we have to get acquainted with the Bible a little bit so that when people throw verses at us, we have something to throw back at them. I would start simple. I would say with verses you know, passages in the Bible that speak to you out of your own conviction, the 23rd Psalm, Paul's chapter on love, the Good Samaritan, even the Ten Commandments, the passages in the Sermon on the Mount that blessed are the peacemakers, or love your enemies and those who persecute you. Take some of the good stuff out of the Bible and knit it in your heart, as Jeremiah instructed us to, that you might speak out of your own conviction. The second thing I think we need to do is pray regularly and constantly in the morning, in the evening, like our Muslim sisters and brothers do at every point along the day, that we might remember this often unknown God and be able to notice God's work in the world and articulate it and speak about it. A few years ago, I was delighted when one of the high priestesses of American culture came out as a Christian. It wasn't a big secret, but it was just as her 25-year-old show was ending and she was starting her own network. And she said, people often ask me, what is the secret of the success of your show? How have you lasted 25 years? And she said, without joking, my team and Jesus. It's a pretty audacious thing to say on prime time. Here's she went on to say, because nothing but the hand of God has made this possible for me. I know I've never been alone, and you haven't either. And I know that that presence, that flow, some people call it grace, is working in my life at every single turn. And yours too, if you let it in. It's closer than your breath, and it's yours for the asking. I have felt the presence of God my whole life, she said. Even when I didn't have a name for it, I could feel the voice bigger than myself speaking to me, and all of us have that same voice. So be still and know it. You can decide to acknowledge it or not. You can worship it or not. You can praise it, you can ignore it, or you can know it. So know it. It's always there speaking to you and waiting for you to hear it in every move, in every decision. She said, I wait and I listen. I'm still. I wait and listen for the guidance that's greater than my meager mind. Now, this is someone who has preached a gospel of possibility of abundant life, just like Jesus, for a long time. She said, all these things, and I believe if Oprah can do it, we can do it too. I believe there's a God that we barely know sometimes because we don't spend enough time thinking about what God means to us. But here's what I also believe. The future of Christianity depends on us talking about this God. The future of progressive Christianity depends on that. The future of this congregation depends on it. So I invite us to think about where God dwells in us 
And I invite us to have conversations this summer and beyond about this God in whom we live and move and have our being. <laughs>